Well, good morning. Uh, when we talk about your offering and your giving going to our mission, that's the things it's providing. And so I don't want you to miss that. Like, we are providing opportunities for those outside of our church to get to hear the gospel and for people to be able to hear that. And that's what it means when we say you're giving to our mission. We're giving to things like that. So, Brandy, thank you so much for being here this morning. So have you ever met someone who loves their city? I mean, they just love where they're from. So growing up in West Virginia, everyone I met from Pittsburgh loved their city, but it was really in an obnoxious way. I mean, they were, they were sold out for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've been there. I'm not real sure why they're so sold out for it, but they loved it. But maybe... Maybe you think about a place you've been that you loved or a city you've lived in that you love. Maybe you loved it because you grew up there. Maybe you love it because your family's there or you started your marriage together there. Or maybe you're like me, you just love it because the food is really good there. I mean, let's be honest, right? There's some places that are better to live because of the cuisine. So a few years ago, I had a chance to go to New Orleans. This was my fourth or fifth trip down to New Orleans to help rebuild, rebuild after Katrina. And as we were there, we, one of the things I did when I took kids there is we always went to the Ninth Ward. The Ninth Ward, if you don't know, is where the levee broke and the homes were flooded. And the first time I was there, that's where we went. We were repairing, well, we were repairing, we were gutting a house that probably is gone now. In 2016, when I was back, 11 years after Katrina, you walk through these communities, and there are now beautiful homes that Brad Pitt made this huge donation to build. They're like hurricane-resistant. They're on 20-foot stilts, so when the flooding comes, these people can live there, and it's beautiful. So you might have this beautiful home next to a beautiful home next to an empty lot with grass that's like up to here, and all you see are the concrete steps that used to lead into the front of a house that's no longer there. No one's come back to, to claim the land. The city mows it once a year or volunteer organizations come in and mow it once a summer. But you can imagine if you had your beautifully landscaped yard and right next door and across the street and maybe on the other side are three houses that have grass up to here. And so as we're walking down this street just there to talk to people, hear their stories, pray with them. This older lady is out and she is literally trimming the grass along her driveway, squatted down on her hands and knees with scissors. She is cutting. Her yard was perfect. I'm like, I don't want to step on that. It would bend the grass. And like every blade of grass was in its spot. And as we talked to her, we said, why do you still live here? One of the kids just asked, why, why are you still here? And she goes, I can't imagine being anyplace else. She said, when Katrina hit, we left. We were one of the last families to get out. And we took off and we left and we moved to Mississippi for a year or two. But I had to come back because I love New Orleans. I can't imagine living anyplace other than New Orleans. How do you feel about Germantown, about Metamora, about Washington? Do we love our city? 
You see, this week we enter into week four of our Equipped series. And I hope that each week has challenged you to wrestle with what it would look like to be equipped to walk alongside others in a way that leads them to an understanding of who Jesus is. And as we ask that question, this week we come to this idea that we're called to love our city. To love the people around us. And so as we move forward, I have a question for you today. I want you to answer. It's multiple choice. I'm going to read the question. It'll be on the screen in just a minute. So don't throw that up yet. Multiple choice. You don't have to come up with your own answer, but you get to pick. If you're going to be equipped to journey with others, what's the most important thing you could possess? Knowledge, compassion, or a skill set? As you think through that question What's the most important thing for you to possess? Is it knowledge? Is it a certain skill set or is it compassion? As we continue this morning, I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind. This isn't the last time you'll see it. And I want you to be processing how you'd answer it. And as we dig in this morning in order to help us answer that question from a biblical perspective, if you have your Bible or your phone, go ahead, pull them out, pull it out to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. If you're in the Old Testament in a paper Bible, it's like Isaiah, Jeremiah, you get to Lamentations, you went too far. It's like almost dead sinner in my Bible. And as we read this text, I think it's important we understand what's happening in this text. So Jeremiah is writing a letter to Jewish exiles in Babylon. They were taken from their homeland into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. And you might be saying, well, why aren't these God's people? Why are they in exile? Well, the reason is because they blatantly rebelled against God and disobeyed God and turned to their false gods. And God kind of looks at them and says, because of your bad behavior and your sinfulness, for the next 70 years, you're going to be under control of the Babylonians. And the chapter right before we read is one of those things that you're like, if you read this in scripture, you should pay attention because something wild is going to happen. So Jeremiah is prophesying that the Israelites are going to be in captivity for 70 years and in comes another prophet and he says, no, Jeremiah, you're wrong. We're only going to be in captivity for two years. So anytime two prophets in the Old Testament start to go at it, the story is about to get exciting, right? So if you're like, the Bible's boring, I don't want to read it, look for times when prophets argue with each other because it's about to not be boring, right? So they're in this public forum, and Jeremiah is saying, no, it's 70 years, and Hananiah's like, no way, it's two years. And Jeremiah goes, Hananiah, you should be careful. The prophets who have prophesied peace and good tidings for God before, when those things didn't happen, they die. Right? Like, I mean, it's like, I told you, it's about, to get, it's about to get real, right? And so in walks Jeremiah one day with a yoke, like the one Chase put on the screen a couple weeks ago. I think we've got a picture up there. He's got this thing like strapped around his shoulders. And he's like, Israel, listen to me. It's going to be 70 years. It's not going to be two. And Hananiah's like, he's totally wrong. Walks over to Jeremiah, grabs that yoke off, slams it on the ground and breaks it and says, God is going to break the Babylonian captivity in just two years. Jeremiah goes home that night, has a vision from God, and God speaks to him and says, it's going to be 70. You need to go and tell Hananiah tomorrow that it's going to be 70 years, 
and warn him that if he doesn't repent, he'll be dead before the year's over. Jeremiah goes back to Hananiah. He's like, hey, listen, you're wrong. You broke the wood one. Now God's going to put a stone yoke on his people. They're going to be here for 70 years. If you don't repent, God's going to take you out. The seventh month of that year, Hananiah dies. And Jeremiah writes this letter now to those in captivity. And let's pick up and see what he says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies said. The God of Israel says to all the captives who have been exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay Plant gardens and eat food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they may have grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In these days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your land. There's a lot in these 10 verses for us to unpack. And there's a few things I don't want you to miss as we walk through this. First is, you might know that Jeremiah 29 contains a verse that many of you might have on a coffee mug or on a painting on your wall. I know the plans I have for you. Or maybe grandma cross-stitched it for you on a pillow, right? And gave it to you at graduation because God knew the plans that he has for you and they're going to be plans for good and for prosperity and all of those things. Let's not miss what's most important about this verse. That verse that we put on a coffee mug or we hang on our wall or we cling to is written to a people enslaved in Babylon. Right after they're told, you're going to be there for 70 years. So this doesn't mean I know the plans I have for you, good plans. Today, no Israel, you're going to be enslaved for 70 years. Now, if you look at verse 1, Jeremiah is writing this to the elders in Jerusalem, in, in captivity. Anybody got a guess how old the elders were in captivity? They were elderly. Right? So imagine walking up to a 70-year-old and being like, hey, in 70 years, I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, plans for your good, plans for a future and a hope. Most 70-year-olds I know are going to look back at you and be like, I don't want to be here in 70 years. This was a promise these people would never receive. The adults who are hearing this message, many of them would never 
received this promise. God's saying, I have a plan for the collective you. I have a plan for my people. It's not going to be instantaneous, right? We don't like this. We like to put things in the microwave, have them come hot in 30 seconds and be happy, right? We want it now. We want it fast. I mean, think about it. I was in Minnesota for five and a half years, right? You get auto start for your car so that you can start it and you walk out and your car is hot in the winter. But that's not enough. So then we put in heated seats so that my car could not only be warm, but when I got there, I could turn my seat on and my, my body would warm up almost immediately. But for Americans, that's not fast enough. So now we made it when I start my car, my seat warmer automatically comes on. Or in the summer, I can start my car, my air conditioning, and my seat cooler comes on and I walk out and everything is perfect. Right? That's what I mean when we say we want things instantaneously. We're not waiting 70 years. But God's promise for the Israelites is that I have plans. Not today, but in 70 years. And what God's saying for the Israelites in the midst of that is, I am with you. I haven't forgotten you. The second thing Jeremiah says in this passage is that as they're there, you should make the most of it, right? And this is shocking to us. God, you know they're in slavery, right? They're, they're held captive. They want to be in Jerusalem, the city they love, but they're in Babylon. God says, it's okay. Build a house. Plant a garden. Have kids. Have grandkids. Make the most of the time you have there. Oh, and seek peace. And pray for the welfare of the city. Pray for its welfare, because its welfare determines your welfare. Now, when we see peace, many of you might know, that Hebrew word is shalom. It means peace, but the word welfare in the Hebrew in this passage is shalom. When the city experiences shalom, you too will experience shalom. And shalom is way more than peace. It's not just like there's no war. Shalom is a sense of wholeness, of harmony, of being complete. The Israelites who are enslaved should work for the wholeness of their captors. They should pray for them. They should pray and work that their captors may live in harmony and they live in harmony with those who have captured them. These are not easy words for us to hear, are they? We should pray for those who hold us in captivity. Prophets were often called to give not easy words to the people. Maybe this is why they were often killed by the people they brought the word of God to. The last thing I don't want you to miss, there is a promise of hope. There's a promise that this enslavement, this captivity, 
will not last forever. 70 years. That is all. And then I have a plan and a hope. A hope for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And the Israelites know this because all throughout the book of Jeremiah, the prophet says, every time God speaks, say to my people. When Jeremiah is condemning the actions of the Israelites, God says, to my people. When God is calling them to lament and mourn for the wickedness they've done or the wickedness around them, he says, my people. And when he's promising them something for a future, for the hope that they have, he says, I'm going to bless my people. For us today, it's important for us to understand that no matter what mistakes we make, we are God's people. And he loves us. The Israelites would not be slaves forever, and we will not live in this temporal place forever. So what does this passage say to us today? Before we answer that question, I think we have two things we have to understand. I think it's really important that we remember Jeremiah's words are written to slaves who are commanded by God to embed themselves in the society of the day. And as followers of Jesus in 2022, it's really easy to say we're set apart and remove ourselves from the tensions that exist all around us. However, if we're going to live in the gray, then we need to dig into the tensions created by our pluralistic society and not try to avoid them. We're called to pray, to invest, and to hold out hope for a world that is directly opposed to our view of truth. And the second thing we need to remember is that question we ask at the first. If we're going to be equipped to journey with others, what's the most important thing for us to possess? Knowledge, compassion, or skills? I think as we unpack Jeremiah for our day today, it will be clear that compassion for our community is a gospel expectation. Compassion for our community is a gospel expectation. If we're going to be equipped to walk with others, we have to be people of compassion. Let me explain that by asking you to think back to a time when you didn't have it all together. You know, for some of you, you might be like, that was 50 years ago. My life has been pretty good. I figured this out. It was rough early on. But for some of you, it's 50 years ago. For some of you, it's five minutes ago, right? You're like, I'm still not sure I got this whole thing together. For some of us, we're sitting in here with smiles on our face, and we're here this morning, and we're like, I hope everybody can't see that I don't have it all together, but I know I don't have it all together. So wherever you are in that time span or somewhere in between, when you didn't have it all together and life felt like it was crumbling, did you need someone to show up in your life with the knowledge of all the answers? Did you need someone to show up and remind you, hey, you know, I knew when you made that mistake, it was not going to work out well for you. Remember when I told you? I had the knowledge. 
Did you need someone to show up with the skills to be like, if you just would have asked me for help, I could have told you X, Y, and Z, and we could have been there. I could have taught you how to do this. Or when you were in that place, when life felt like it was falling apart, did you need someone to show up and listen? To show up and be present? Say, hey, I, I don't know, but I'm going to stand by your side. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to walk next to you. And we'll figure this thing out together. I don't know too many of us that don't want the third option. When my life is falling apart, I don't need someone to show up and tell me, you're an idiot. It's true. But I don't need to be reminded of that. So if we're going to experience compassion for our community, first, we need to be praying for our community. Jeremiah teaches, or Jesus teaches this on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are pretty clear. If we're only praying for those who look like, behave like, agree with us, and vote like us. We're no better than those that don't follow him. He says pray for your enemies. Pray for your, those who are holding you captive. Paul backs these words up in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you first of all to pray for all people. And ask God to help them intercede on behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Church, can we pause for a minute? When was the last time you and I prayed for Governor Pritzker. When was the last time we prayed for President Joe Biden? When was the last time you prayed for Vice President Kamala Harris? I'm not asking you to agree with their policies. I'm asking you as followers of Christ, have we prayed for them? Have you prayed for your bullies? Have you prayed for your boss? It's just hard to get along with. Have you prayed for your neighbor who's just annoying, right? The Israelites were enslaved 
the Babylonians. And God's word to them through the prophet Jeremiah was to pray. I wonder. I spend a lot of time what-ifing in my office. I wonder if the world around us would view the church differently if we spent more time praying for our leaders than judging them. I wonder if we prayed for our cities, if God would begin to change hearts and do things that we can't even imagine him doing. That's the truth of the verse in Ephesians that CJ read, right? To the God who can do imaginably more than we can even dream. Church, I believe that as we pray, God changes our hearts. And God builds in us a heart of compassion and love. And he removes a heart of stone and judgment. Church, it's not enough to just pray. That prayer should build in us a sense of compassion that should lead us to invest in our communities. If we're going to be a church that's known for compassion in our community, we can't just sit in holy huddles in our living rooms and pray for each other. We have to get outside of ourselves, into our communities, and meet people where they are. As I think about investing in our communities and the people who live there, I want to share something that's been on my heart for a while now. And to be quite honest, I was nervous to share it. Just because the Supreme Court has overturned Roe vs. Wade, does not change how we as a church should be responding to the women who are hurting. The church has always been called to care for orphans, to love all people, and to offer the same forgiveness that we have been given through Jesus' death and resurrection. Truth is, this has nothing to do with politics for us but everything to do with the compassion the gospel calls us to, to show the people we're called to love, the compassion that God has for them. For some of us, investing in our communities might mean becoming a mentor to a teenage girl who needs to be reminded of the value she has and who God says she is. To some of us, investing in our community might mean mentoring a teenage boy, modeling for them how to treat women and respect with di and dignity, and to model that for them in our own lives. For some of us, it might mean opening up our homes to foster or adopt kids that need a home. For others, it might mean walking with women who feel stuck and don't know what to do with their pregnancy. 
And it means loving them regardless of what they decide. Maybe for some it'll be a dream of creating a safe place for unmarried expectant moms to stay during their pregnancies. Providing them care and to prepare them to build a life for themselves and their babies. You see, church, the gospel calls us to invest in significant ways in the lives of those who are hurting. We can't just stand on the edges. The Israelites didn't want to be drug into captivity. But when they found themselves there, God said, invest. There's hundreds of ways to invest in our community, in the people all around us. Dream Center is about to have a Serve the City Day on Saturday, September 24th. That's a chance for us to go invest in the city that we sit right in the outside of and to take the love of the gospel to that place. Peoria Rescue Ministries is always looking for small groups or individuals to serve meals to the least of these and to lead a chapel service. If you want to get a little closer to home, maybe you could call Tuckaway. Say, hey, I've got a free Saturday. Is there anybody who needs something done? And go serve and invest there. I think that's what Jeremiah meant when he said, build a home, plan to stay, plant a garden. I am sure that if you go and talk to Chris Genders, he has a spot for you at the Metamora Youth Center to invest in the lives of the kids in our community. And just as sure as I am of that, if you talk to the Rowles, I know that they will use your help at Reclaim Resale. Again, providing and investing in our community. You see, compassion that seeks to bring wholeness to a community will not stop at prayer or typing words on a screen. It will lead us to action. And these actions are not for those, for those people who have it all together or who have the right answers. These acts of compassion come from a humble heart and a listening ear. It means we have to be okay being uncomfortable and meeting those in our community where they are in order that they can hear the gospel that will lead them forward from there. Jeremiah called the Israelites to invest and to put down roots. I think we're called to do the same. We pray, we invest, and we remember we have a hope. Church, we pray and we invest because we have that hope. For the Israelites, it was to be back in Jerusalem. Their hope was to be back in Jerusalem. Jeremiah didn't have Jesus. He had the promise of a coming Messiah who would come one day to set Israel free. But he didn't have the hope that we have. 
Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has conquered death. And we have hope of a better future. And church, as we go, as we pray for those outside, as we invest in, with love and compassion and humility in that place, we take with us a message of hope that will change their life. It's a hope that changes their eternal future. But church, the sad part is, according to a LifeWay survey, 30% of unchurched Americans have ever had someone inside the church tell them what it means to follow Jesus. Whew. 70% of people who don't know Jesus in America have never had someone share that message of hope with them. That's the message we take with us into the world. That's the message that we share through our actions and through our words as we invest in our communities. Church, we have work to do. But I believe that God has equipped Great Oaks to make an eternal difference in this community. And that it starts by us learning to be people of prayer and of compassion and leads us to invest deeply and to model for our community what it means to have a hope through Jesus Christ. I don't think the prophet Jeremiah or the words of the gospel allow us any other option than to have compassion for our community as our gospel expectation. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we come this morning, we come humble. God, there's so much happening all around us. We don't have answers to it. So many of the things that happen in our world today are so complicated and complex. God, we don't know what to do. But God, we fall on our knees and cry out to the God who created us, who holds this universe in his hand, and who has a plan. God, help us. Help us to see where you're calling each one of us to invest. Father, forgive us for the times where we've known where you wanted us to invest and we've chosen to shy away. We've chosen to not reach out. We've chosen to stay safe. God, I pray that you would make this church a launching point for each person who calls it home to invest outside, to be reminded of the truth of your gospel. 
and the responsibility to share it broad and wide with anyone who will listen. And to do that through words and actions. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the grace and forgiveness that we've been shown. May we never forget that. We pray all this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.